describe for you a 22-year-old young man, and I want you to form an opinion about this person. So I'm going to go through and give you some descriptions of the way that he is living his life, and I want you to begin to create an image in your head of what you see this person as. So he sets his alarm 30 minutes early every morning so he can get up and spend time with God in the Word. He even memorizes scripture on a, on, on, from time to time. He's a single guy, but he refuses to date any woman who isn't passionate about Jesus Christ, and that severely limits his pool of prospects. He meets with one of the church elders um, pretty frequently in order to be discipled and learn more about Jesus, and then he turns around and he meets with three middle school guys each week, and he pours his life into them, and he teaches them about Jesus. Even though he only has a part-time job and he's pretty young and he's still finishing school, he faithfully gives a percentage of his income to the church. He has a heart to tell others about Jesus. In fact, three of the guys that he works with, he is, uh, has them pray, he's praying for them every day. They're on his prayer list, and he's looking for opportunities to tell them about Jesus. Anytime the church needs something and he's available, he jumps in and volunteers to help. He sometimes even, I've noticed, approaches the elderly in the church and asks if there's anything they need. He's not a great singer, but you can hear him singing loud during the worship service, and he loves to sing praise and worship to God, not just at church, but even on his own time. He goes on mission trips when he can, and he actually, when the missionaries come and visit the church, he actually goes up to them and asks about their mission field and asks about what's going on there. All right, so have you formed an opinion about this young man, 22 years old. Well, you're probably sitting there thinking, this guy is like super Christian, right? I mean, like he's like a Christian prodigy, right? I mean, this guy is special. He's so unique. Man, if only we had more people like that. Well, in light of today's scripture, I think what I've just described to you is a normal Christian 22-year-old man. He's not perfect, He makes mistakes, he confesses his sins every day, seeks after God. But I don't find this as being atypical as I look at this passage of scripture today. I find this to be the norm, a normal Christian life. And so we're back in Mark chapter 8. And I want you to think of that and frame that up in your mind as you listen to this scripture and as we talk about this scripture. Jesus said... This, after calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's verse 34, verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for the sake of the gospel will save it. And what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we admit that your words today challenge us. God, we admit that we have set the bar extremely low in our own lives and the lives of our family that oftentimes we look at 
discipleship is an add-on to our Christianity. And God, I pray today that you'll wake us out of our spiritual slumber, God, that you will help us to see um, just really what you've called us to do and to be through the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were here last week, Jesus had just uh, asked his disciples, who, who do you think I am? He asked, who do the people think I am? Now, who do you think I am? And Peter stopped up and he said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Huge, huge statement. I mean, they've come a long way, but the concept of who the Messiah was was still lacking at some regard because when Jesus then shifted and said, okay, here's what's going to happen. The Son of Man is going to be arrested and he's going to be killed. Peter jumps in and the disciples are right there with him and they say, this ain't going to happen. We're not going to let that happen. He rebukes Jesus. And then Jesus rebukes Peter as if he was rebuking Satan. Get behind me, Satan. And so as we talked about a lot through this book, that the concept of the Messiah was one of the conquering king, the person who's going to come out and run out the Romans and set up the kingdom. But Jesus had something totally different in mind. I can't help but to think when he began to say these words that Peter realized that if Jesus was going to suffer and die, those who were following Jesus were also going to face a similar situation, a similar um, suffering, and a similar possible death. And so Jesus begins to explain now, after he, he says this, he begins to explain what this means and how this is going to play out. And it's not just for the 12 that he's sitting there talking to at this moment, but what does he do? It Look in verse 34. He calls the crowd. So the crowd that's gathered around in the peripheral area, he, he draws them to himself. I want everyone to come to me. Everyone come in close. Come in close. I need to tell you something. And he draws them in with his 12, and he's calling all of them to discipleship. And he says to them, if any of you would come after me, if you're going to come with me, you're going to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So Jesus is telling his 12, and he's telling everyone who's listening, following me will literally possibly cost you your life. You need to be prepared because you may die for me. Because I'm going to die, and you may die. And we know from Scripture and from history that 10 of the 12 disciples were martyred for their faith, and the Apostle John, at an old age, was exiled for his faith. And many of the early followers of Jesus gave their lives for the cause of Jesus. So, do you think the disciples were shocked at these words when Jesus said this? Because their concept of a conquering king and Jesus says, No, here's what's in store for you who follow me, the king. Because we're going to Jerusalem, we're going to the cross. And they would not be rulers who were powerful and have authority. And he said that to the twelve, and he said it to all those who were gathered around. You know, most people who follow Jesus don't die for their faith. So how, how do we apply this? How do we take it and take it from first century and set it down and apply it into our lives, our comfortable existence? Well, I think the words of Jesus are clear that everyone who comes to him, whether you live in the first century or the 21st century, should be prepared to die for your faith. It, it, you should realize that it could cost you everything. Now, the part of the world physically we live in, you're not going to be a martyr for your faith. 
um, America, even though it's obviously getting more hostile toward Christians, you're not going to probably be put to death for that in your lifetime. Could change. But that's not true for other parts of the world, even today as we speak. In other parts of the world, even as we speak, there are many people that when they decide to follow Jesus, this passage is as real and clear and relevant to them as your favorite scripture verse. Because the truth is, when they decide to follow Jesus, it's a life-altering decision. For millions, dying is a real possibility for their faith. And whether they die or not, they expect a life-or-death moment in their faith. And so, while we can figuratively look at picking up our cross and following in a minute, the truth is that this is real life, real world, real give-your-life-for-Jesus stuff for us today also. Because the world, and we have a hard time grasping this, because our world is so different than many parts of the world where you would literally be challenged if, if a pastor stood up and said, okay, how many of you want to come to Jesus today? You'd be thinking, let me count the cost here for a second. All right? So my parents, they're going to reject me. If I'm serious about this, I may really, really be persecuted, and I know some Christians who have been put to death over their faith. So let me consider the cost here for putting my faith in Jesus Christ. Let me consider the fact that I'm going to humble myself before him and ask him to forgive my sins and be my savior. Because it looks like, based on what Jesus said here, that I have to be willing to give it all up. That I have to lose myself at the cross. Give myself up. I no longer live, literally, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. And so this coming to Christ may cost me everything. And so if we think of it that way, it changes our perspective on this passage. I think of it this way. Like many Christians, many of us, myself included, um, think of Christianity as something that really doesn't have a lot of risk involved, other than maybe somebody snickering at you from time to time or thinking you're a little too serious. But I remember back in, in the late 80s, I think it was maybe early 90s, when the first Iraq war started. You remember that? Some of you may remember it very, very clearly. And when the first Iraq war started, people were in shock who were in the National Guard because we had been at peace for so many years, and all of a sudden... They were getting called up and actually being shipped over to the Middle East for service. And I remember families were, were terrified. They were like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. We're, we're National Guard. We just go on the weekends and do fun stuff together, right? Like, we just hang out. Like, this is not, we're not in the real military. We're just, like, this is just, you know, we're weekend warriors, right? And, and there were many people I knew who were in major crisis, but here's the thing, whether you sign up for the National Guard or whether you sign up uh, or the reserves or, or, or whether you sign up for active duty, you're signing on the line saying, I'm signing up for combat. I'm signing up because if we go to war, I'm available. I'm here and you're paying me in order to do that, right? And there were people who were literally just taken aback by how could they do this to us? And that's what I think really makes this point what Jesus is making real to us is we don't think. We think it's peacetime. We think it's, it's things are easy and smooth and comfortable in America. 
And the last thing would be that we would have to suffer and be persecuted for our faith, and we really can't wrap our minds around that people in other places are really literally giving their lives for the cause of Christ. So we got to change our mindset to be hearing Jesus' words literally here and realize that we're signed up for maybe dying for our faith. Probably not, but definitely persecution for sure. And so think about it for a second. Would you, would you, would you die for the cause of Christ? That's a hard decision to make sitting here in this room where you know, it's, it's 68 degrees or 70 degrees in here and you're in a nice comfortable chair and things are pretty good for you. It's hard to think about the fact that would I die for Jesus? I heard, I think it was Chris Beam say one time, he was like in marriage counseling, he might ask, you know, he might hear a man say, um, man, you know, I would, take, I would take a bullet for my wife. And he said, well, you might take a bullet for your wife, but why won't you take the trash out for it, right? Like, you, you know, you, you have all these big, grandiose statements of these great things you're going to do, but you won't do the little things that are required. And I think that's the way it is as I'm sitting here thinking, well, would I die for my faith? But if I would die for my faith, then why would I not live out in comfortable America my faith in a more passionate way, in a more passionate manner? And so let's be careful with our bold claims when our day-to-day ordinary claims are really not there, that our day-to-day application of this isn't really in place. And so... As we think this literally and then move to figuratively, I want you not to forget the literal side of it. But there is this side of it that, that this sacrifice that requires us to be willing to be inconvenienced for our faith, that the side of it that requires us to experience real sacrifice for our faith that most of us really aren't in touch with. And so this figurative side of it really just hits at this, the incredible, deep-seated, selfish tendencies of us all. Because Jesus said, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And we have indwelling sin in us that is fighting against everything that we have to live selflessly for Christ. And it's working overtime to make us live life for ourselves. And Scripture clearly says that we have three enemies as a Christian. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil, the world, the flesh, the devil, the world around you, the fallen world, even though may not be literally saying, hey, let's go, you're dying for your faith today, but they're working against you in every way that they can. The system of the world that is anti anything to do with Jesus and, and the scriptures. And we see that, like I said, more and more every day. It opposes God, it opposes his rule and his reign. And then you have, as I mentioned, the flesh, and it's working overtime. And the Holy Spirit, Scripture says, gives us the power and the desire to be progressively killing our selfish tendencies. Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Did you hear that? The Holy Spirit is in you if you're a true believer, and he's working for God's will And he's given you the power, and he's given you the desire to want that. And so, as as a believer, the Holy Spirit should be progressively pulling you closer and closer to Jesus and a selfless life, a living for others more than you live for yourself, versus a life that says, I want to do what I want, don't inconvenience me, don't ask me ever to sacrifice for the cause of Christ. And so... It's a daily death. It's a, it's a painful death. It's a slow death to ourselves. 
And I know if you're like me, maybe sometimes in this fight against our flesh, that sometimes you almost think that maybe a physical martyrship or martyring or, or giving your life would be almost easier than killing this indwelling sin that still lives inside of us. Because it, it's hard and it, it's difficult. And full deliverance won't come until Jesus returns. But God wants to rule our hearts. He wants to rule our hearts. And I'm afraid that so many times we neglect some of the most important instruments that God gives for our sanctification, becoming more like Christ. And I think the one that we neglect the most is what Justin alluded to here was the body of Christ. The fact that you have other Christians here who want to encourage you and help you in your faith. And we don't have to run and hide. As, as was mentioned by Jeremy, that we've been justified through Jesus Christ. He has done the work. He has declared us righteous all because of what Jesus did. And we can walk and live in a way that doesn't have to be ashamed of the fact that we struggle. Because we all struggle. As was mentioned, in our marriages, we all struggle. There's no perfect marriage in here. There's no perfect person living the Christian life the way that it should be lived exactly. But as we talked about from the illustration in the beginning, there's things that we can put into place and there's routines that we can establish and rhythms we can establish in our life that really help us to walk in the Spirit and put ourselves in situations where we can have the power of God living in us. But I'm afraid that sometimes we almost think that God would respond with shock or disgust if we truly were honest with him about this, our struggles. And especially if we're honest with another Christian, we're really scared that we would be rejected. I read a, a, a devotion book, a 365-day devotion book by Paul Tripp. Every morning I read one of the devotions, and this was last Wednesday. He writes, The admission of sin doesn't lead you somewhere dark and depressing because you know you've been given grace that is greater than your sin and your celebration of grace is real and heartfelt because it, it's done in the context of your confession of the very sin that grace addresses. Confession of sin without the celebration of grace leads to guilt, self-loathing, timidity, and spiritual paralysis. And I love that because God can handle you confessing your sins real and honestly before him. And, and sometimes that those who are afraid to face up to the fact of how weak you truly are apart from God's spirit, walking in God's spirit, you're, you're scared that God's going to some way look at you and, and, and think you're not worthy of the cause. But the very thing that you should be running to, which is confession and seeking him and really asking him just to fill you up, and help you through those weaknesses. That's the very thing you run from because you don't like the guilt and the feelings that it leaves you in. But that's where grace is so amazing. Grace is so much more powerful than any, anything that you're struggling with or dealing with. That God's grace meets you there because of the cross, because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice. So we don't have to run and hide. We, we, we're an open book. We open ourselves up to God and we open ourselves up to our brothers and sisters in Christ who we have great accountable relationships with which we should have some of those relationships so that we can progressively put to death the sin that's in our life. The Bible not only teaches us to do this, but it encourages us to step out of the darkness, to step into the light and face with reality and honesty those things that are still are our besetting sins, those sins that we're still struggling with, which is probably a lot more than we even are aware of and dare to name. And sin loses its power 
when we bring it into the light. It does. When we bring that sin out and we bring it into the light, it loses its power. And so I, I hope as a church we'll continue to move forward in this area of just being real and honest and authentic and have relationships where we can really experience fellowship, what biblical fellowship is. You know, I think biblical fellowship, you know, in America and our existence is really just, uh, you know, an easy, self-protective way of living where these relationships that we call fellowship are really nothing more than just throwing out spiritual cliches and feeling better about ourselves uh, because we met with another Christian or we talked to another Christian. But we, we guard ourselves, we put up walls, and we're afraid to bring into the light the things that God wants to expose. You won't be able to live your life in the way that God has called you to live without the community, the church community. You can't deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me without those type of relationships. Why? Because the church is the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ. And the body of Christ, that Jesus comes around you through his people and gives you encouragement, help, and helps you during your struggles and during your weak times. And I think sometimes we, we're afraid that you know, I can't let the church replace the Holy Spirit, but the church and the Holy Spirit go hand in hand with one another. They do. They go hand in hand with one another. The Spirit works through God's people and speaks through God's people through his word. And so don't run and hide. Surround yourself with people who will be honest and real with you and help you and encourage you. And I think many Christians have missed this call to radical discipleship because we are. We're, we're scared of what might be, of what, what people might think, what might come out in our life that we aren't really comfortable with other people knowing. And so we've got to be real and we've got to look at Jesus' words and see that this is not some ancillary teaching off to the side to do these things that maybe one day you'll achieve this super level of Christianity. This is really Discipleship 101 this is the first thing Jesus says after saying, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to die. Now, come and die with me. So he says, deny yourself, verse 34. And if, and if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. What does that mean, to deny yourself? It's denying your selfish ambitions to rise above other people. It's your, denying your selfish behaviors to get what you want when you want it. It's denying that. It's denying your selfish ambitions to carry out only your interest at no matter what the cost is. You're going to get your way, your needs first. I want this, and I want it when I want it. And if we're going to deny ourselves, that means that we, as a community, are able to look out for other people as much as we look out for ourselves, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. The words of Jesus, not mine. And so God wants to expose these areas where we are unwilling to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow. And sitting here in, a, in a, a sermon on a Sunday morning, it's easy just to hear the words but not really make this personal and think about where your tendencies are to be so self-absorbed and where your dreams lie when it comes to these these areas where you know that you would, if you had the resources, you would just run life based on completely on your terms, the way you want it, when you want it. And, and, I, and I thought about it for a second. I thought uh, the, the, biggest, the biggest lottery ever won was $1.586 million, billion dollars, billion dollars, yeah, billion dollars. It was divided among some people, but $1.586 billion was won in a Powerball a few years ago. 
I want you to think about it. What if you were the sole winner of that lottery? What if you literally, after taxes, you know, maybe get a, like, you know, a, a billion, right? You, you take home a billion dollars. I want you to think about, I'm going to give you a few seconds just to fantasize in your mind. All right, you just want a billion, okay, not a million, but a billion dollars in the lottery. Think about some of the things that you're going to do. All right, maybe now the Holy Spirit is exposing our selfishness. Because as I did this, I honestly have to say that there were a lot of things that appealed to my comfort. Man, I'd love to have a beach house. I'd love to have a Ferrari. Some of you, it's more power than maybe than comforts. Maybe it's, man, I would, I would be able to use this as a platform just to do so much, which would involve so many people under my control because power is kind of your root idol underneath of it all. Maybe it's, maybe it's, it's just uh, approval. Maybe you see this as a way to create more fame for yourself and you'd be recognized and people would, would just fall all over you because you're so wealthy. And you can kind of, kind of, Dig down to some rude idols there that exist in your heart, in my heart, that are exposed when we have all the resources that we could want in order to achieve those things that we dream about. And I think these things show us where the battle in our heart lies. I don't think we need to feel guilty over the fact that those things pop into our mind. We just have to be aware of them and constantly confess it on a small scale. You may not have $1 billion, but you may have $100,000. And how you use that $100,000 or $10,000 or $1,000 is coming from the same place in the heart that having a billion dollars would do. You just have to divide it out more based on obligations. But at the end of the day, when you come home and you have this much left, it's what do you do with it? And that's convicting stuff. Not just for me telling you, but that's convicting for me as well. Because it's hard. Because it takes denial. Jesus would not have said, deny yourself if this came naturally. This comes with only the Spirit's power and God leading us to new passions, new dreams, new things that are about his kingdom and his glory. And then this idea of taking up your cross. All right, so we think cross, we think Jesus, we think, you know, he died on the cross for us. This would come later for the disciples. Right now, when they're hearing cross, they're going, whoa, cross, take up your cross. The cross is the way the Romans execute murderers and the worst people of our society. And not only does he, do the Romans put them on the cross to execute them, they do this in a very slow, painful manner. The cross is just a long, drawn-out death. So Jesus is saying, take up our cross. And then a lot of times the criminals, as Jesus did, would have to carry the cross through the streets so other people would see them and would mock them, and they would be ashamed. And so you get the picture here that the people hearing Jesus say this, not just the super Christians, the 12, but all the crowd, you're going to take up your cross. Whoa, cross, execution, death. Man, this is serious stuff, right? That's what they're thinking. This is insane. So when Jesus died... A few months later, they had a better understanding from Jesus' perspective for sure. But Jesus desired to obey the Father and do the Father's will no matter what it cost him. And he's our model, right? Just like Jesus. He's our model. That he said, 
not your will, not my will be done, but yours be done. And so he went to the cross, suffered and died because of the Father's will. And that's what, as followers, he calls us the same, that we pick up our cross, we realize that when we come to him, we are ex executing our selfishness. We're dying to ourselves. And as Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 says, we become imitators of God as dear children, little children. And how do we do that? We live a life of love. Just as Christ, here's the example, just as Christ loved us, and what did he do? He gave himself for us. So the application is you live a life of love, which is sacrificial love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You know, for some people here, this call to die, this call to discipleship, this call to just really abandon your dreams and your hopes for the kingdom is, is, is very, very radical. I think of Buzz uh, and Sharon. It, Buzz is right now, he's in Africa and Liberia. He's working long days of Sharon here. Um, how many hours a day does he probably put in over there? I don't see her there here today. Um, 12, 13, 15 hours a day in a culture away from his family. It's real stuff for, for him. God has put on his heart a desire, even at most the age where most of us would be, you know, much rather be on a sailboat somewhere than we would be to be in Africa serving in a rural campus somewhere. But also Chuck Harper, who I mentioned last week, who I said, you know, I want you to hear some of his story that Chuck um, sat down with Michelle and I, he and Joyce and shared about what's going on in Honduras. And I said, we gotta get a video of this. And so thanks uh, to Mitch for making that happen. And so I'd just like to show you um, his video right now. With Chuck and Joyce Harper with Jeremiah 29-11 mission. We got in the mission field 12 years ago. We f felt a call from God. So as we began to pray and investigate places and talk with uh, other missionaries and people, God narrowed it down to Honduras. But there's a tremendous peace when, when we were praying we prayed about several places to go, and, and all of them were exciting places, and, and we thought we could fit good, you know, but we prayed, and there just was never a peace, and we found Honduras and started praying about that, and the doors just flew open, just right and left. I mean, within a month, I think, of praying about yeah. this, um, we had already had an interview and been accepted, and we're on our way. And our mission is to take the children that, and the uh, people that God brings into our lives and to work with them to help them understand their future in Christ through Jeremiah 29 11, which is, gives us so much hope that and it says, you know, that, that God knows who we are and He has a plan to help us and to prosper us. And I don't mean prosperous with money, but prosper spiritually. And that's to give us and to give us a hope and a future. And we teach the children that. And uh, we've had a lot of success with them grasping that concept and seeing it. And one of the things that after they learned the scripture and after they learned that there, that there really is hope, even though they were under punishment from God himself, just like a good parent does, God reaches down to them in their situations. And he says, I know who you are. I have a hope and a plan. And even though we're separated from him here, there's always that hope. I thought we'd go into the field. I wasn't sure how long we'd be there. We, we kind of went in open-ended. We sold everything we had in the U.S. I don't foresee ever coming back home to live. I think that we will be there until we die. Our God calls us elsewhere, uh, and only God can say that. But as far as Chuck and I can see, 
but right now we will we will be in Honduras until we die. And uh, it's what I always refer to as a beautiful journey because we really never expected it to be. But it's been how God has worked in our lives changed us so much. No, I appreciate their passion. You know, but Chuck, you know, if you if you uh, open your shirt up, would would there be an S on your on your chest because you're super Christian? Su S M super missionary? Nope. The truth is, Chuck and Joyce are just normal people, Buzz, Sharon, who feel compelled to do something incredible that calls, results in extreme self-denial, extreme sacrifice from our point of view. But the truth is, your calling and my calling is really not that much different. But we get the luxury of spending it here in Bainbridge in a pretty comfortable situation. A, a friend of mine who was a missionary in Honduras called, I, he said this, not me, he, he said Honduras was the armpit of the, of, the, of, of the Caribbean or South America or something, and it's a pretty nasty place. But God's called you to live a selfless life. He's called you maybe not to go and turn Honduras upside down with the gospel, but you know what he has done? Every Christian in here, he's called to turn your world upside down and not just think of a world, think of like the people who you have influence over, the people you know, the people you're around daily. You know, it's a cliche, but you know, you're a missionary where you're at. And if you think in those terms that God wants to change somebody's life, just like Chuck and Joyce are changing lives, God's called you and I to change lives through the gospel. Disciples making disciples. Look back at, at the verse again. He, he, he says, take up your cross and follow me. Just follow me. Where I'm going, there's where you need to be. And it may not be packing up and going to a foreign land, but it is following him wherever you go for his glory and his will, making disciples. And, and a call to follow Jesus is a call to make disciples. It is. It's a, a call to every Christian to make disciples. Being a disciple, I'm going to follow Jesus, always ends in I'm going to make disciples. And you don't have to be an expert. You know, I think that's what holds a lot of people back is this idea that if I just learn a little bit more, if I get a little more knowledge, have a little more, then I'll be know enough to be able to pour into somebody else's life. All right, let me, let me show you, just illustrate this real quick. Uh, look at this picture, right? These guys here are some of the best basketball players on the planet, okay? They, they didn't win it this year, but they're some of the best, minus the baby, all, they're, they're the, some of the best basketball players on the planet, okay? These guys are professional. They're incredible. Now, let me show you some other basketball players, all right? All right, here's some other basketball players, all right? These guys are not so professional, all right? I mean, in fact, you can go 180. These are guys who, uh, to use the word amateur, it would be a, uh, an overstatement, all right? These are guys who get together on Wednesday morning and come up here and play basketball, all right? So I can assure you, speaking for me, but also for a lot of those guys in the picture, they're not very great basketball players, especially compared to those guys in the first picture. Ryland, come here real quick. He's going to help me with something, all right? Let me, let me show you something real quick. Right, come up here and stand, all right? Ryland's a good athlete. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, what did I call Brighton, sorry, uh, your brother. I called your brother's name Brighton. Brighton's a good athlete, but the truth is, you know, I have played basketball longer than he has, but, you know, I'm not good. But I played basketball longer, and I know some of the basics of basketball, and I could probably show him some of the basics of basketball and help him be a better basketball player. I mean, you know, you, you play basketball? 
played one year. So, you know, I might be able to, do you know what a crossover dribble is? So I could probably show you a crossover dribble. It wouldn't be very good. I'm actually, the ball might, I might lose the ball. But I could show you the concept of a crossover dribble. And you know what? You could go home and practice that, and you would get better at that. I could show you maybe how, the, you know, on a right-handed layup, when you do a right-handed layup, you go off your left foot. And then when you do a left-handed layup, you go off your right foot. All right, most of the time when I do a left-handed layup, I miss almost all the time. But I know, like, how to do it, and I try to do it the right way. You know why you do that? You know why you go off your left and say you're right on the left side? It's harder to block that shot. So I, I teach you that, okay? But I am far from a professional. I'm far from even, like, a, an average player. But you know what? I've, I've been in the gym long enough to know a few things. You know what? I, I couldn't teach you something called, I don't even know what this is, a Eurostep. Mallory, help me out. What, what is your Eurostep? I have no idea. But I know, I've heard them talk about this. I couldn't teach you that. That's a little bit above my pay grade here, but I could teach you a crossover dribble. I couldn't teach you how to break a press on a team, but I could teach you, um, you know, how to dribble looking up and not looking down at the ball. So I know some basics of basketball, and I could teach those to you. What about you? You know, basketball compared to discipleship is very insignificant, right? But if you know anything about basketball, if you play basketball for a couple years in your life, you could probably te teach Brighton a few things. Don't think you have to be the equivalent of the warriors in order to teach somebody about your faith, about Christianity. Stop using that for an excuse. Truthfully. I mean, we're in a gym, right? We're in a gym. You bet if you were playing basketball in here as much as you've attended church, and you didn't know the first thing about basketball... Either you're really slow or you sleep through church every single week, all right? Thanks. Appreciate it, Brian. Brighton. You know more than what you think. And God has given you not only the knowledge, but he's given you, he should have given you the passion and the power through the Holy Spirit at salvation in order to desire to see other people come to Christ and grow in their Christian faith and become more like him. But here, I think, is the problem. This is the problem. If you're going to make disciples, you need to be putting your faith into practice so that people around you can imitate your faith. Let me say that again. If you're going to make disciples, you need to be putting your faith into practice so people around you can imitate your faith. You see, what that's getting at is this idea of we're a hypocrite. We might know the right things, but we aren't executing the right things at all. We're not even really trying to do those. Luke, his account of the scripture that we're looking at today from Mark 8, Luke's account adds a word that's missing in Mark. Go to the next screen. What's the word that he adds in there? He says, if anyone would come to me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up his cross daily and follow me. I love that. I love that Luke included that word. Why? Because passion, vision, desire, it leaks. It, 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 we just lose it. We know we do. We can come out on Sunday morning fired up, but by Monday and Tuesday, it, it's gone. It, it just leaks out. Look at, look at 2 Corinthians 4.16. It'll be on the screen too. Paul says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed. How? Day by day. 
What's he getting at? He, he, he's saying you can't live tomorrow on today's fuel. You can't do what God has called you to do tomorrow if you're not fueling up tomorrow. The, the, the verse that Justin alluded to when he was up here, Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new, how often? Every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God gives us form-fitted mercy and grace every day for that day's problems and that day's challenges, that day's opportunities. Do you get that? Do you see that? That every day is going to have its set of challenges to follow God and do God's will. And God says, I'm going to require you every day to come to me and fuel up for that day to give you the form-fitted mercies that you need to face those specific things. Why does God do that? Why doesn't God just dump sanctification on us at salvation? Here's why. Because it's not for our glory, it's for God's glory. And when I have to go back to what we called as a kid the filling station, right? The gas station every day and say, God, I need from you today. If I'm going to fulfill your will today and do what you've called me to do and love the people around me, I can't do that on my own. I need you to fill me up. And who gets the glory? I'm humbly dependent upon God every single day for his mercies for that day. And so we wonder why we struggle so much with denying ourselves. It's hard enough when we're daily seeking God, but for those who just, God is occasional and he's kind of a side sort of thing we do. And occasionally if we think about it or feel guilted enough about it, then we'll seek him in his word. But for most of the time, the majority of our fill-up is right here at church on Sunday and maybe a K-group and maybe one other time during the week. We start off good on Monday by by Friday or Saturday, it's gone. We fill up, and then we run out of fuel. And they're like, okay, Sunday. I need Sunday to fill me up again. And it's a cycle that we're on. And, and, and God says, look, the challenges are going to be daily. You're going to have to take your cross up daily. I've got new morning mercies for you every morning for you to give to you, to help you. And you'll be dependent upon me. You'll be humble at my feet. And I'll get the glory, not you. To, to sum this up real quick, I'm just going to read verse 35 and 36. For whatever would, for whoever would save his life will lose it. So he's, giving, he's saying there's this eternal perspective here. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Take that billion dollars and just gain the world and then you die at the end. And you come in out, leave this world the same way you came into it, to it, naked with nothing. And you forfeit your soul. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? The eternal perspective on this life. See, that's what God gives you daily at his feet. He reminds you that there's something bigger and more important than all the tasks and things that you have laid out ahead of you that day. He says, John... As you open the word, as you're looking, as you're praying, I'm reminding you that there's more than just doing the job, meeting the person, 
closing the deal, doing the computer work that you do every day, whatever it is you do, there's more to life than those things. There's more to life than running off and doing this for your kids and taking them there and this place and that place. There's something much bigger. Don't gain the world and lose your own soul. Jesus' words, not mine. For whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel. I like that. My sake and the gospel, one and the same. Because for us, my sake, Jesus is saying this. It's easy to say, well, it was easier for them because they were actually right there with Jesus. But he says, my sake and the gospel's sake. It's one and the same. The gospel, the good news. What can a man give in return for his soul? So in summary, recap. True disciples become progressively more selfless. True disciples become progressively more selfless. Not me. It's not about me. It's about your kingdom. It's about others. God gives new mercies every day to do what feels humanly impossible, which is to love others the way that I love myself, to love my neighbor as I love myself. The soul is of eternal and infinite value, and we should sacrifice ourselves for Jesus' sake and the gospel by making disciples. You don't have to be an expert. You just have to be willing and look around and say, God, who's faithful? Who's available? Who's teachable? I'm going to come along along their life. I'm going to say, let me invite you in. I'm going to share with you what God's been teaching me. And you're spreading his news, his, his, fulfilling the great commission of going into the world, preaching the gospel. That's what he's called us to do. When he left, he said, here's what I want you to do. Go spread my message. Lose your life. Gain life. My cross, your cross. Let's pray. Father God, we... We're forced to, in this moment, to just be real and take inventory and not hide because your words are difficult, they're tough. And as we prepare ourselves to take the Lord's Supper, communion today, and as we are called to examine ourselves, God, may this moment be one of a special examination. God, search our hearts. Reveal to us where we are extremely, extremely selfish. And God, help us to name that and turn it to you. And God, as you reveal these things, we confess them to you. God, I pray that you'll help us to just see a real true application to your words today by thinking of people in our lives that we need to invest in knowing that if we're not daily seeking your mercies, that we'll lose vision and lose sight of that the first time we're inconvenienced by their ask or their, their, their desire for our friendship when it's not on our terms. God, I pray that you will allow us to recognize that those tendencies and confess those to you. God, we thank you for the sacrifice that you gave us in Jesus and that we can stand before you without guilt, unashamed, because of the justification that's through the cross. And God, may 
our love for you compel us to just love others and to be imitators of you as, as little children and live this life of love just like you loved us and gave yourself for us. In Jesus' name. I just ask you to take just a couple minutes of just quiet stillness and just allow the Holy Spirit to examine your heart. If you're sitting here today and you have no desire really whatsoever to live the kind of life that's been laid out here God, uh, before God, I pray that you will maybe acknowledge for the first time that you're, you're not a believer, that you need Jesus as your Savior and that God will uh, begin to move your heart to himself. As you take communion even today, maybe it's uh, the first time that you take it as a true believer because you know that uh, in the past it's been your life for you, not your life for, for Jesus. And I hope you'll come to the cross today and humble yourself. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you need a Savior.